Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Diving Board Podcast. I am your host, Jill, and thank you so much for joining me for another spooky deep dive for Diving Board October. I am so happy to have you here on the spooky side of the deep end. Very excited. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on the first Diving Board October episode a couple of weeks ago. That was definitely very spooky. And as I was re-listening to it, I had noticed when I was telling some of the spookier stories, the mic would kind of trip or um, kind of make a mistake. And I was like, oh my gosh, was something here with me as I was doing that episode? Because I had never heard that those kind of mic sounds before in any other episode except for Diving Board October. So I was definitely scared because you know I'm a scaredy cat, but I thought it was interesting. I mean, it probably can be debunked and it's like, Jill, you're on a a mid-range microphone that you bought off Amazon like four years ago. So that could probably explain it, but I still thought it was a little bit scary. So hey, what can I say? Um, Anyway, I'm excited to be back. Uh, I was on vacation and I had a work trip kind of seep into each other uh, the past week. And I uh, spent last week in New York City, Boston and Salem, Massachusetts for my little Halloween trip this year, which was so fun. I had a great time up in Salem. Um, If you are interested in any Salem, Massachusetts content and you haven't uh, seen my story, check it out on the Diving Board Podcast Instagram. It's at Diving Board Pod. And of course, that is B-O-R-E-D. I have a highlights there telling the story of the witch trials and then telling some ghost stories as well. And it's just kind of a fun thing, uh, story to flip through. So definitely check that out if you haven't. And thank you all so much for the messages on that story. I doubt myself every day. So I was like, is anyone even going to be interested in the story? But I posted it right after I got home uh, back up to Boston that night, because Salem and Boston are only like 25 minutes from each other. So I got off the train back to my Airbnb and then just posted my Salem story and went to bed. And I woke up to so many nice messages and all of you telling me how interesting it was and how fun it was to uh, read. So thank you all so much. My love language is definitely uh, words of affirmation. So yes, anyone I've ever dated has had their work cut out for them. So uh, (laughs) I really appreciate all of the really nice messages of everyone saying how much they liked it. So thank you all so much. But I'm back today for our second installment of Diving Board October, and I'm really excited to be back because I really enjoyed doing last episode of Diving Board October because usually when I'm doing Diving Board, I try to be very chronological because it's just easy for me to get a lot of information out and follow it if I'm going chronologically and I'm going from the start to the finish. But I do like the Diving Board October format as well of just kind of casual storytelling. So I am really enjoying that. And this particular topic I'm looking forward to getting into because when I first started Diving Board back in February, I had my no app and I was writing down different topics that I wanted to cover throughout the podcast. And of course, like I mentioned before, I was thinking about what the October episodes were going to be and this topic was on that list. So really interesting story. And I think this is probably 
the most or at least one of the most notorious unsolved crimes in the history of Hollywood. And when I say Hollywood, I'm not referring to the metaphor of show business. I'm actually referring to literal Hollywood, California, you know, Los Angeles County. And I really think it's probably the most notorious unsolved crime in all of Hollywood, in all of Los Angeles. And Los Angeles has had some doozies. So (laughs) that is saying a lot. And that is the story of the Black Dahlia. And If you know anything about old Hollywood or true crime, you know about the Black Dahlia or you've at least heard about the Black Dahlia because like I said, it is a very notorious unsolved mystery and it has inspired many television shows, many movies. There was a movie, I think it was in 2006. Um, I know I was in high school and it's called The Black Dahlia and Scarlett Johansson was in that film and I did not see that movie, but um, when I looked it up, I don't think we're missing anything if we didn't see that film because it has a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, so I'm not concerned. But um, like I said, it is a very, very well-known story. But if you've never heard about the Black Dahlia, we will start from the beginning. And who who was the Black Dahlia? Well, her name was Elizabeth Short. And Elizabeth Short was born in the 1920s. She grew up during the Depression, and she grew up in Massachusetts. And while Elizabeth was growing up, when she got into her teenage years, particularly her late teenage years, she really grew into an exceptionally beautiful woman. She had a very striking look, and she definitely had that old Hollywood look. And she had porcelain skin, but it was a stark contrast because she had jet black hair, and she had those translucent blue-green eyes, and like I said, just exceptionally beautiful. And Elizabeth didn't really have a plan in life, but at 18 years old, who really does? If you did, I admire you because I certainly did not. But Elizabeth did not have a plan and she wasn't really looking for a plan. She kind of had a nomadic lifestyle. She was all over the country. She had first moved to California um, because her father was living there and she got into a little bit of trouble. She was 19 and she was charged with underage drinking. And even though she was legally an adult and not a minor, she was still viewed by the law as a juvenile delinquent. So they sent her back to Massachusetts and she got involved with a man in the service. So she moved down to Florida They got engaged and he was actually killed in the line of duty. So that really turned Elizabeth's world upside down and she was kind of back to her nomadic transient ways. And Elizabeth went back to Los Angeles. She moved to Hollywood and a lot of people say, and I'm just going to preface and say there are so many myths about the Black Dahlia, especially since the story is 80 years old. People have had 80 years to make up urban legends about the Black Dahlia and stretch the truth. So you will hear me kind of talking about that throughout the episode. And when you're trying to research the Black Dahlia and get accurate information, it is so difficult because like I said, people have made so many stories up. So, you know, guys, just give a girl a break. She is just trying to make an accurate podcast, but it is not easy because people make up so many tales. But a lot of people said 
that the Black Dahlia moved to Los Angeles and moved to Hollywood to become a movie star. And it made sense because, like I said, she was so beautiful and she looked like a movie star. But Elizabeth did not move there to pursue any career in the entertainment industry. They said she never even went on one audition. She was never an extra in a film. She was never even in a school play. So she did not want to become an actress. Elizabeth really was just kind of roaming around. She was couch surfing. She was looking for a roof over her head each night. She would stay with friends for a couple of days. She would scrounge up some money to have a night at a hotel. She would stay at a lot of female boarding houses in Los Angeles. And my point of reference for boarding houses is um, Hey Arnold, because if you're a 90s kid, and especially a Nickelodeon kid, you know that Hey Arnold's grandparents owned a boarding home where there's just a lot of boarders. You share the bathroom, but you have your own bedroom, but you're living with a bunch of random people. And it's definitely a cheaper way to live. So that worked for Elizabeth. But she really she didn't have a job she didn't really know what she was doing she was just trying to to find her way and it is very difficult to find yourself in Hollywood that is definitely a um precarious area when you're trying to figure out life but she just was kind of roaming around she would uh, go to a lot of bars and she had a rose tattoo on her thigh and she would kind of sit at the bar. She would have a slit up her dress and kind of lure these men in. And even though Elizabeth was, I mean, technically experiencing homelessness, she always looked beautiful. She always had really nice clothing and she or her hair was always perfect and she looked really, really nice. But when you got closer to her, you would see that the purses were made of plastic, the shoes were made of plastic. It was it was this illusion. It was really just her portraying a lifestyle which she wasn't a part of. But men, we know uh, when they're attracted to a woman, they're not looking at any of that. So men were really, really attracted to Elizabeth and she was able to lure them in a lot. And Another myth is that the Black Dahlia was an escort or a prostitute, and she wasn't. She just knew how to kind of use her power as a woman and her feminine wiles and get some money out of men. She would go on several dates a week with different men, and a lot of people call it dating for dinner. And Elizabeth did that a lot because if she would go on dates with men, they would take her out, she would have a hearty meal, and and she would be set for the day. So that is kind of what Elizabeth did. She would have a lot of gentlemen suitors. She would pass the time. Sometimes she would pit them against each other, probably out of boredom or a sense of power. But that was really where she used her energy, was getting these men to give her some money here and there and you know, maybe sometimes a place to stay. And Elizabeth... She was kind of done with living in Hollywood after a little while because, like I said, when you're living in a boarding house, you're living with a lot of different personalities, and she didn't like the women that she was living with. So she was like, okay, we're going to try out San Diego. And she had been in San Diego before because she was dating a gentleman there, and it just didn't work out. So she went back to San Diego, and she, again, did not have a home. So 
a woman named Dorothy French had seen her sleeping in a theater by herself. And Dorothy was a good woman and was around Elizabeth's age and saw her and felt really bad for her. And she thought she was kind of mysterious and she seemed kind of very down on her luck and vulnerable. So she's like, I'm going to help her out. I'll bring her in for a few days at my parents' house. And so she brought Elizabeth in and Elizabeth, like I said, did not have any money. Former boyfriends sometimes would wire her some money to get her through a couple of weeks and she would give that to the French family, but she did not have a lot to offer them. She would clean their house a little bit, but overall, Elizabeth was still going out every single night and with different men that she was meeting. And after about a month, the French family said, okay, Elizabeth, it's time for you to move on and we need you to find your next home. So Elizabeth packed up and she was talking to a man named Red Manley. And this tracks because Dorothy French said the last time that she saw Elizabeth in And this was in early January of 1947. The last time she saw Elizabeth, she was getting picked up by a man with red hair. And Red Manly, it was an interesting situation because he was using Elizabeth as a bit of an experiment because he was married and his wife had just had a child. So he was kind of going through a life crisis and he was thinking, okay, I'm going to use this woman as an an experiment that if I sleep with her, I no longer want to be with my wife. But if I don't sleep with her, that must mean I still want to be in my marriage. So that is a horrible situation for a woman to be in. But like I said, Elizabeth's lifestyle was so transient that that she needed a ride back to Los Angeles. So she kind of had to deal with this guy's weird midlife crisis. So he picks Elizabeth up and Elizabeth is in the car with him and she has bruises and she has scratches. And she was telling him all of these stories about her life, about how she has an abusive boyfriend and she's had many abusive men in the past. And she was telling a lot of stories and read was listening to her, and at first he believed all of them, but as time went by, he had caught her in several lies, and her stories were just not matching up. And they went to a hotel that night, and Elizabeth said, hey, it's my time of the month. I'm not going to sleep with you, which I'm sure a lot of the women listening have used that excuse before. But um, <laughs> but she said, it's my time of the month. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to sleep with you. He's like, okay. The next day, they drive back and they go to Los Angeles and they pull up at the bus depot because Elizabeth wants to rent a locker to keep her stuff in. And back then you could rent lockers, I think for a nickel a week, especially if you were living a more transient lifestyle, you could have your belongings locked up and not left at someone's house where they could go through them and everything. So she locks her stuff up at the locker and Red says, well, I'm not going to leave you here. It's a bad area. I don't feel comfortable leaving you. And she goes, just leave. My sister's going to come pick me up, which was a lie because her sister lived up in Oakland. But Red said, well, I'll stay with you until she gets here. And Elizabeth's like, oh, my gosh, we're back in Los Angeles. You can go away now. But he just he wouldn't. 
And eventually she says, okay, drop me off at the Biltmore Hotel and I'm going to meet my sister. I'll be safe there and you can leave. So he goes, okay, I'll drop you off at the Biltmore. And if you know anything about Los Angeles, you know that the Biltmore is kind of notorious that it's it's haunted. There's a lot of stories about the Biltmore. And I think they might have gone there um, on the girls next door. I'll have to revisit that episode. But there's some stories about the Biltmore. And this is the last place that the Black Dahlia is reported to be seen alive. Now, a lot of people have said that she was never at the Biltmore, but Red says that that's where he dropped her off. And then she walked over to Crown Grill because that is where Elizabeth would kind of troll for men. She would sit at the bar at Crown Grill and kind of be on the prowl. So it tracked. Those were kind of the locations that Elizabeth would be at. And that is the last place that Red saw Elizabeth. And that is the last place that people report seeing Elizabeth alive. And we don't know what happened, of course, but a week later, Red saw Elizabeth at the Biltmore and dropped her off. A mother and her daughter, her young daughter, were walking down the sidewalk in Los Angeles at 39th in Norton and saw in the lawn a body. And the woman from afar thought it was a mannequin because the body was dismembered. The body was cut in half. And as she got closer, she realized that it wasn't a mannequin, that it was the body of a young woman. And it was the body of Elizabeth Short. The extremely scary thing about seeing this, I mean, seeing a dead body is horrifying to think about, but what makes it even most horrifying is that the body was severed at the waist. It was severed in two and it was drained of blood. So the Black Dahlia was extremely, extremely white and she was severed in a way that none of her organs had been altered. She was literally just cut in half at the vertebrae. So whoever did this had done it with such surgical precision that it was such a clean cut that Elizabeth was really split in two. The woman, of course, freaked out. She ran to a nearby home and called the authorities and they got there. And it was just an absolutely horrifying scene. They had no idea who this person was. She was left there out in the open. They were not trying to dispose the body in a pond or bury it. Whoever did this wanted everyone to know that it had happened. So the police ran fingerprints and of course her fingerprints were in their system and they identified the body as Elizabeth Short. Elizabeth was only 22 years old at this time. And this sent shockwaves through Los Angeles because they had never seen anything like this before, especially having it out in the open and especially how her body was laid out into two. Absolutely horrifying. And when people are reeling, the case only gets scarier because about a week and a half later, the first major piece of evidence 
shows up and it shows up at the Los Angeles examiner's doorstep. It's a very creepy envelope that was addressed to the Los Angeles examiner and the words that were written on it, you, you know, in those like old timey crime movies, they have the notes where the words are cut out of magazines and pasted together to make a sentence. That's what it looked like. And it said, here is Dahlia's belongings. And side note, the Black Dahlia had already been known as the Black Dahlia in the press because they came up with that name rather quickly because her pictures had come out and she had that jet black hair and she would always wear um, flowers behind her ears. So they referred to her as the Black Dahlia. Also, a film about a year before Elizabeth Short's death had come out called The Blue Dahlia, and that became a very famous film. Side note, that actually has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. So very, very well-known film back then. So they began referring to this crime as the Black Dahlia. So this envelope said, here is Dahlia's belongings. Inside the envelope were Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on a piece of paper, and an address book. Now, they immediately started scrubbing this for fingerprints, but whoever sent this was smart in a way because they had rubbed the envelope with gasoline and that had eliminated any of the fingerprints that were on the envelope, which I didn't know about this life hack. I mean, I'm not trying to hide my fingerprints in any way, but I had no idea that gasoline had eliminated any of um, the fingerprints. Now, of course, this led police to believe that whoever sent this letter had to be Elizabeth Short's killer. I mean, how did they get all of this? So they started flipping through the address book and police started contacting approximately 75 men that were in Elizabeth's address book. But when they called them, they're like, I didn't really know her very well. We went on a date or two, but but we never had any sort of relationship. It was a fling at most, because like I said, Elizabeth was out with many, many men every different night. So these men didn't really know her that well. And there were really no leads that came from this address book. And now, if you're the Watson to my Sherlock, um, <laughs> if you're the Watson to my Sherlock, you're going to tell me, well, the, the next logical step in this case of interviewing suspects is to interview the guy who was the last person to see her alive. Let's interview Red Manley. And the police did. They brought him in. They thought, okay, this is our guy. We're going to solve this crime. But they polygraphed Red. They polygraphed him twice. And he passed both times. Now, a polygraph test is widely disputed. They're not really going to use it in a court of law because the science to a polygraph test is kind of wonky. You can you can beat a polygraph test. A lot of times they use it to get people to confess, but he passed it and he passed it both times. So they decided, uh, let's bring out the big guns. So they decided to give Manly some sodium pentothal. And sodium pentothal is something that they'll give patients sometimes before anesthesia to kind of relax them. And they, in the 40s, viewed sodium pentothal as a truth serum. 
uh, <laughs> again, it was the 40s. We'll, uh, we'll cut them some slack. You know, it's all trial and error. But they viewed that as a truth serum. So they gave that to Red, and Red stuck to his story. He said, hey, I had nothing to do with this. I dropped her off at the Biltmore. She said she was meeting her sister, and I went home to my wife and kid. Nothing ever happened. And they let Red go. He was no longer thought of as a suspect. And just a side note, I thought it was really interesting. Red Manley died January 9th, 1986, which was exactly 39 years after he dropped the Black Dahlia off at the Biltmore. To the day. Just, that was a little crazy. That's a little spooky anecdote. But... You know, that was their main suspect. None of the guys they were talking to turned up. I mean, Elizabeth lived a life where she just knew so many people, but she didn't know anyone very well. So nothing was nothing was leading to anything. And eventually the case just went cold. And because this case was such a nationwide media firestorm, I mean, it was being talked about everywhere. It was this beautiful woman who was found dismembered in Hollywood. People are talking about it. And because it was such a frenzy, this came with a lot of false confessions. To the day, the Black Dahlia murder has rendered over 500 false confessions. And you may be wondering, why the hell would somebody confess to a murder they didn't do? I mean, a lot of times when there is a false confession, it comes after days and days of interrogation and gaslighting. And, you know, after that, eventually you start to think, wait, did I do it? And you confess to it. And that's the usual false confession. But these are people calling in and saying, hey, I committed the Black Dahlia murder. And for one... Those people are probably mentally off and maybe think in their head that they actually did do it. Uh, Also, there are people who, I mean, back then there was no Instagram, there was no TikTok for talentless people to become famous. So they call and get their five seconds of fame by saying, hey, I committed the Black Dahlia murder. And also people suck and just want to send the police on a wild goose chase that is going to lead to nowhere. I mean, people have called and confessed to the Black Dahlia murder who weren't even born yet when it happened. So people just suck and are annoying. But the police has had a really hard time with this case because it has created that kind of frenzy. But there still have been some interesting suspects in this case that I personally think, in my opinion, one of them is probably the Black Dahlia killer. One of them was Mark Hansen. Mark Hansen was a man who owned a club in Los Angeles and he had known the Black Dahlia. She had hung out with him. He actually wanted to date her, but she just kind of brushed him off. But she would go to his parties. Like I said, Elizabeth Short was out on the town all the time. So she knew him relatively well and she would hang out there. And he had actually given her the address book that was turned into the authorities with that envelope that said Dahlia's belongings. Um, the address book was actually in Boston. It said Mark Hansen on the front cover. So obviously they reached out to him, but nothing ever came of that investigation. And of course, if you were Mark Hansen and you killed the Black Dahlia, why would you, you're essentially turning yourself in by sending the uh, address book with your name on it. Uh, and another interesting false confession came in 1950 by a woman named Christine. 
And Christine was in her mid-30s. And she said that she had actually had a relationship with the Black Dahlia, that they had a lesbian relationship. And she said that it kind of turned into a little bit of a love triangle because she went out to a bar one night and she saw Elizabeth there with another woman. And that sent her just into a blind rage. She threw Elizabeth into the car. They started fighting. She started strangling her. Elizabeth fought back and Christine began stabbing her and just eventually threw her body out and drove off which the authorities didn't really think anything of that confession because it didn't make sense. Because we know that Elizabeth's body was found with such a precision cut and she was drained of all of her blood. So the crime scene was not bloody. If you had been stabbing someone with a pocket knife, it would not have the precision that the body was found at and there would have been a lot of blood. But the interesting anecdote that Christine had mentioned, and this is kind of gruesome, so I suggest fast forwarding it. It's hard to talk about regardless, but I suggest fast forwarding if it bothers you. I mean, it bothers me. But the interesting detail that Christine provided was that she had put some of the Black Dahlia's hair in Elizabeth's nether regions. And that is true. That is how the body was found. Some of her hair was um, put there. And also the flesh of where her rose tattoo, that was cut out of her body and, and put there as well. And the fact that Christine knew that puzzled the LAPD because that was not public knowledge at the time. But it actually turned out that Christine was friends with somebody who worked at the coroner's office, and that woman kind of leaked the information and gave that to Christine. Christine was very, very mentally off, and she said that she made up this story because she came home one night a couple days before the Black Dahlia was found, and she just had a, I, she was in a sweatshirt that was covered in blood. She woke up and she was covered in blood. And she realized, I, I must have got into it with somebody. I did some damage on somebody. And in her mind, she thought it was the Black Dahlia. She put two and two together, but they were not together. That was a square peg into a round hole because none of this made sense. None of it fits. And she just made up this grandiose story that led the police on a road to nowhere. But of course, the press took this story and they ran with it because it's the early 1950s and a lesbian relationship is horrifying to them. So they thought, oh my gosh, the Black Dahlia was involved in a lesbian relationship. Of course, this makes sense. She was killed in a dark-sided lesbian love triangle and just used that to push a homophobic agenda. And that is a prime example of when people talk and they say, oh, I was born in the wrong time period and I should have lived back then. I would have been so much happier living back then. I cannot disagree more. I truly cannot disagree more. I mean, this time period has its faults, but I would not want to live in any other time period than right now. I mean, hearing how society was back then, I just... It's, I am, I am very happy that I uh, did not uh, experience that. Uh, anyway, I mean, I've studied 
cases throughout my entire life. And I have never seen a case with more false stories attached to it than that of the Black Dahlia. And it really questions my faith in humanity. Like, what is wrong with people? This poor girl has already endured the worst thing that can ever happen to you as a human being. And then her name has to get dragged through the mud posthumously with all of these false rumors. And she is not here to defend herself. Like, what is wrong with people? I've, I've never seen anything like this. And just it's upsetting because she just can't rest in peace because people are horrible. But anyway, like I said, there were a lot of stories that led police just to dead end roads. Nothing ever came of it. But there is one suspect that I believe if anyone were a prime suspect, it would be him. And if anyone would have done it, I believe that it was him. And that is a man by the name of George Hodel. And George was a doctor in Los Angeles during this time period. And he was well known because he was a little bit infamous. He was extremely wealthy. And he had this kind of compound in Los Angeles that really looked like a Aztec pyramid. It had a pool in the middle of the home and he would have all of these lavish parties. It reminded me a little bit of the Great Gatsby or of the Playboy Mansion, just these massive parties. And he would have them often. He had actually fathered 11 children by five different women. He was definitely a man about town. He definitely had a lot of women frolicking and he was not a good person. He was um, accused, and I believe it's uh, very, very, very true, that he had essayed his daughter. He had actually gotten her pregnant. A horrible, horrible man. And when people started seeing pictures of the Black Dahlia, they had recognized her as a woman who had been to George Hodel's parties. So somebody tipped off the police and said, look into George Hodel as a suspect. And the police, they had already known about George Hodel. Like I said, he was uh, very infamous. People knew his name and they knew him as a very wealthy, shady doctor in Los Angeles. So the police, they took this tip seriously and they started bugging George Hodel's home because they wanted to get something. And they were hearing some really, really incriminating things on these recordings. They had once heard a woman scream on the recording. They would hear him say some really, really weird things. After that woman's scream, he said, realize there was nothing I could do put a pillow over her head and cover it with a blanket, get a taxi, expired 1259. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they might have figured it out. Killed her. I mean, uh, okay. That's uh, pretty, pretty incriminating to hear on a recording. And the doctor added, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. Um, and his secretary, her death record said that she had overdosed on drugs. And um, they have a recording of him saying that. Like, they have his place bugged. It was a Watergate situation. They have him on 
on recording saying this stuff. But after that recording was apprehended, the LAPD closed the investigation on George Hodel and said that they had not found anything incriminating on him, which you might be thinking, wait, what? Like this guy is saying this stuff not knowing that his place is bugged and we have it on recording. I think this is enough evidence and enough right to at least bring him into questioning, but nothing ever happened. And you have to remember back then the LAPD was notoriously corrupt. I mean, I'm from Chicago. I know about corrupt police, but uh, they were notoriously corrupt and George was extremely, extremely wealthy. So Did George pay somebody off? Did George threaten somebody? I don't know. But they closed that case and didn't revisit it. And I think that is also one of the scariest parts of this case was the fact that this could be the Black Dahlia murderer and the police just didn't investigate it. They probably, I feel safe to say, have more evidence incriminating him and nothing ever happened because of the corruption. And it's interesting because years and years pass by and Steve Hodel, who is one of George's 11 children, he became a homicide detective for the LAPD. And Steve Hodel had gone when his father George was dying, he went to his deathbed and George's wife gave Steve a photo album and she said, I think your father would want you to have these. And as he was flipping, flipping through the photo album, there were two pictures of a woman, very porcelain skin, dark black hair that resembled the Black Dahlia. And when he was looking at these pictures, he's like, oh my gosh, this looks like the Black Dahlia. And being a detective, he goes into uh, the police station and he pulls out the folder of the Black Dahlia that hadn't been revisited at this point in decades. And he starts going through the clues and he starts looking at some of the letters that had been sent to police. Because during the investigation, there had been some letters that were sent to the police, kind of taunting them, kind of, again, leading them on a wild goose chase and saying that they were going to turn themselves in. And some were actually handwritten. And he looked at one of the handwritten letters and he recognized the handwriting. And he said he would know that handwriting anywhere. And it was the handwriting of his father. And this is what really sent him into a complete frenzy of thinking that his father was the Black Dahlia murderer. He started investigating everything. He had a expert analyze the photos, but the expert looked at the photos and said, hey, this, yeah, they look similar, but there are key features. This this woman isn't the Black Dahlia. I mean, she had the style of, you know, the the 40s, early 50s, kind of that hairdo and the makeup. If you sent a girl in who, you know, the early 2000s and had some highlights, really tan skin and a North Face sweater, we're all going to look alike at that point. So she just had the style, but it wasn't uh, the Black Dahlia. But Steve was still convinced, and he started doing a lot more investigating. And Steve knew his father was not a good person. His mother had actually said, your father is hungry for blood, and your father has a very, very evil side to him. So Steve knew it could not be that far off that he would commit this murder. 
Now, George Hodel, uh, he was a doctor, but he wasn't a surgeon, but he could have been if he wanted to be. They said in medical school, this was something that George Hodel excelled at. He had a very steady hand. He was very precise and he was very, very good at surgery. And when you look at, you remember how the Black Dahlia's body was found, it was her body was cut in half with such precision that her organs weren't disrupted. Nothing was messy or the average person, if they were to do it, it wouldn't have been as precise as somebody who had been trained and knows human anatomy and that kind of precision. And that leads to George Hodel. The Black Dahlia was also found with you know, it's called a Glasgow smile, you know, the slits like the Joker to make it look like you're, that eternal smile. Really, really scary. But it's like the Carver. If you ever watched a Nip Talk back then, sorry, I was raised by Ryan Murphy, but that, that storyline, how he used to do that and slit into that smile. That's another thing. It was done so perfectly that it, it had to be somebody who had that kind of surgical precision. And that was George Hodel. And when Steve Hodel was looking at the evidence, there was a sketch of a person that was actually sent into the police station in North Carolina, which was then given to uh, the Los Angeles Police Department. And this was in the 50s. And it was a sketch of a person and it said, Dahlia Killer, look into this man. And it was a sketch of a person. And if you look at that sketch, it is an exact dead ringer of George Hodel. And I really think it, he did it. It points to it. If I had to really say who was the Black Dahlia killer, I can confidently say that I think it was George Hodel. But unfortunately, George Hodel is gone. He died in 1999. And, and even though there is mounting evidence, there's nothing really anyone can do at this point. The case is so old and there aren't any additional clues and unless some massive discovery happens we may never know what happened to the black dahlia of course i do believe it's this man but unfortunately we don't get closure to this we do know is elizabeth short did not deserve this she didn't deserve what happened to her she didn't deserve what the media and society did after her death, and she didn't deserve the fumbling of the LAPD in finding and prosecuting her killer. People have reported seeing Elizabeth Short's ghost at the Biltmore Hotel. They say they see her walking in the hallway and disappearing into the walls, but who knows? There are so many goddamn stories made up about this case. I don't know what to believe. All I do know is that I wish... Elizabeth Short, the very best wherever she is. I hope she's resting in peace. I hope she's resting in harmony despite all of the Michigas and craziness that came with her case. Wherever she may be, we wish you extreme peace, Elizabeth. And wherever George Hodel is, I hope he is rotting and I hope he is worm food. So um, let's just get that straight. But uh, that is the story of the Black Dahlia, an absolutely terrifying story from start to finish. Just the way the crime was committed and the way society behaved and the way that the LAPD was so corrupt and very well may know who did this and may have had the opportunity to persecute this person and didn't. 
that's what makes this one of the worst cases just in American history. And like I said, the only closure we have is we hope that Elizabeth is in a much better place. But thank you all so much for listening. Um, I hope you learned something if you didn't know about the Black Dahlia. And we're wrapping up Diving Board October. I'm hoping to fit in one more episode of an unsolved mystery in Hollywood. So stay tuned for that. Um, I finish my MBA tomorrow. Uh, I submit my last paper. So I will have much more time to make content. And uh, it's been a long haul. So I I'm really, really happy to be done with it. So thank you all for bearing with me in the last eight months of the program. It was very difficult, but I am happy when I listen to old episodes of Diving Board. It's kind of like an audio diary. So I um, am grateful to have it and grateful for all of you for sticking with me um, on this journey. But like I said, I'm hoping to get one more episode out of Diving Board October. So stay tuned. I hope you all are having a great spooky season and I will talk to you all very, very soon. Take care, everyone.